Hello and welcome back to The Bunker. I'm Dorian Linsky. On this week's podcast, Boris Johnson's roadmap to ending COVID restrictions has just been released. Does Prime Minister being too cautious or not cautious enough? And what headaches await the government? Former Home Secretary David Blunkett joins us to explain what it's like taking decisions in a crisis. And after the rise of the alt-right and QAnon and the increasing threat of far-right terrorism in Western democracies, do we need a de-radicalisation programme for angry white men? All that and more on today's Bunker. Welcome back to the weekly panel edition of The Bunker. We hope you're enjoying the podcast. If you are, why not give us a nice review and positive rating on Apple Podcasts? You'll be helping us to bring in new listeners and spread the word. Now let's meet today's panel. First up, we have Times Radio host and former Labour advisor, Aisha Hazarika. Hi, Aisha. Hello, Dorian. Um, You will have noticed that last week, Matt Hancock was found to have acted unlawfully in the procurement of COVID contracts with some £12 billion allocated without the contracts being published. Um, A lot of people were very angry that Starmer did not call for his resignation. Um, What do you you think? Was that a a wise move or a craven move? I think it's probably just a more realistic move. I mean, it's not a great look for Matt Hancock. And I actually interviewed um, Joe Malm, who is the uh, QC from the Good Law Project, who, t- who took the action um, just straight after the, the judgment. And it, it, it's pretty poor. I mean, I actually asked Joe if Matt Hancock had potentially breached the ministerial code because you are meant to sort of operate within the, the law. So I think there is a lot of anger about this. However, having worked for so many opposition politicians for such a long time, and when we shouted re- resign, resign at so many leading um, cabinet, we were chasing Jeremy Hunt down for like about 18 months. Um, and then he went on to be like the longest serving health secretary. Um, you know, sometimes just shouting resign, resign. Yes, it's a it's a, it's a it's a sort of device which makes you feel good. It definitely generates a lot of like activism base. You know, you get very excited in the House of Commons and you can you can get a couple of media rounds out of it. But then after you're just going, resign, resign, and it's like on day eight, no one's listening to you anymore and there's no chance of that person resigning. It just feels a bit, a bit empty. So I, I have sympathy for why Keir Starmer didn't want to, to do that. I think what he might, have made maybe perhaps said stronger is built up more of a narrative around all the cronyism and there's lots of big questions um over this the VIP lanes and things like that and also maybe what he should have done is is called for an earlier public inquiry which will have a look at all of this um but I do have sympathy for for why he didn't but I do understand why people are frustrated but just remember opposition leaders constantly calling for somebody to resign when they're not going to resign ultimately makes the opposition leader look quite weak. Well, also not to diminish uh, what Hancock did here, but he's had he's had a, a good few weeks. Um, he's been, you know, a, a lot of the time revealed to be um, pushing behind the scenes for some of the kind of wiser decisions around COVID. Obviously, the vaccinations are going well. Does it only... Do you have only have a chance of getting someone to resign if if they've got you know if you can smell blood if they already seem weak and that, that basically he just isn't a target right now? I think that's um, a very astute observation, and also I just think as well like people have been asking Keir Starmer to ask for Matt Hancock to resign for a very very long time. And his argument has been that, look, this would not be constructive to actually lose your health secretary in the middle of a pandemic is not actually going to be very good for for the whole of the the country right now. And as you say, Matt Hancock has seen to have grown in stature, grown in influence. He's definitely in the battle for the prime minister's ear between him and the Hawks and the COVID recovery group and the sort of Rishi Sunaks. He has definitely asserted some primacy over um, the last few months. So that's another reason why I think Keir Starmer's right to be. Also, I had um, 
Ben Pageon from Ipsos Mori, I spoke to him this this week, and, and his view was in terms of where the public are. Unless you can really show that a sort of cabinet minister has benefited himself, you know, to to a decent amount of money from this, it's quite a difficult thing to to win a huge amount of support from from the public. And that doesn't mean Twitter, but the broader public. Good. I thought Twitter was the broader public. I'll have I to look know. into this. <laughs> we need an inquiry, a judge letting inquiry into this. <laughs> Also joining us, we have former Foreign Office diplomat and former head of the government's Prevent programme, Arthur Snell. Hi, Arthur. Hello. Uh, The Shamima Begum case is up before the High Court this week. She wants to return to the UK to start proceedings to reclaim the citizenship that was stripped from her um, due to her joining Islamic State. What are the broader implications if she loses? Not not just for her, but in terms of precedent. Well, actually, the the powers which Home Secretaries have to deprive uh, British citizens of, of their citizenship are considerable. It might be that, uh, and we'll hear more about that later on, but um, the, the it, is, it is a little known part of British law that um, if certain recommendations are made, it is possible just to sort of switch off someone's right to be British. I, I think, though, in this case, what, is, what has made it sort of particularly high profile is the, the genuine questions about whether this young woman was herself a terrorist or was she a child who was groomed by older men who you know fell into a sort of disastrous series of life choices and ended up tragically losing two of her children as infants in a in a ghastly situation uh, inside the islamic state so i think that's where i'm not sure that it's really a legal precedent that makes this one an unusual case so much as just the, the human story we're delighted to be joined by a very special guest for the first half of today's show. He was Labour MP for Sheffield Brightside for 28 years and served under Tony Blair as Education Secretary, Home Secretary and Secretary for Work and Pensions. He's currently a Labour peer and Professor of Politics at the University of Sheffield. Welcome, David Blunkett. How are you? Very happy to be here. What do you make of the Shamima Begum case? Do you think that depriving uh, people of citizenship should be should be only used in extreme situations? Well... I introduced it and I only intended it to be where people had dual citizenship and therefore they clearly had an alternative and we didn't want them back in the country using the uh, the powers and the rights that exist for British citizens. In this case, it's a presumed uh, alternative citizenship, isn't it? Because she she never actually had it. I, I, I think when you get down to cases that are all about illustrating how tough you are, you should choose enemies and opponents of your own size. And I think very, very foolish young women uh, are not one of them. And I would have her back. She, she'll obviously need an enormous amount of uh, attention. Uh, but actually, our humanity sometimes overrides our anger. And in this case, I think that should be the uh, the way we, we, we go. And we're going to be talking about the government's latest announcement, their roadmap, in a bit. You wrote a piece for the Mail a couple of weeks ago, headlined, We Have to Start Living Our Lives Again. Um, is it strange to find yourself agreeing with Tory backbenchers on this uh, particular subject? Yeah, it, it's absolutely terrifying, if I'm honest with you. Um, I'm beginning to wonder what's happening to me. Or perhaps alternatively, what's happening to them? I mean, I'm I'm strongly in favour of the return of schools on the eighth of March. I would have. I mean, it's difficult to say this, and I understand entirely why leaders of my own party are very cautious because the uh, the population as a whole are so scared, understandably, after eleven months of almost daily warnings and dire distress. Uh, that if you're too ambitious on this. You take a political hit. Well, I, I, it doesn't matter to me anymore whether I take a political hit because I'm not going to be promoted to anywhere, anywhere soon. Um, so I, I take the view that having heard Boris Johnson in the Commons, we could speed this up. I mean, they're not going to, but I think that we could accelerate from April and May rather than leaving it until June. And I think it's particularly true in terms of those areas of our lives where people have to plan ahead. Uh, and, you know, restaurants and hotels have to plan, plan ahead. Uh, aviation industry has to plan. You know, we, we need an aviation industry, by the way, not just because we like to fly, but because they bring in and take out 
a, a massive amount of our most uh, valuable freight. Uh, and if you don't actually have them flying, eventually you lose the capacity and then it's picked up by our European, what used to be our European partners. So there are very big economic issues here as well as ones about health. After all, what was the point of the vaccine? The point of the vaccine was to accelerate as fast as possible to as normal a life as possible. And by mid-March, we'll have had well over 20 million people vaccinated. Uh, they will be the most vulnerable. And therefore, we can, I think, be more optimistic. But it's not going to happen. He's going to stick to this roadmap now. And Labour will back it. Well, because I mean, I noticed that 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 um, that there were projections, uh, scientific projections, that that if the COVID recovery group uh, got their sort of deadline of the end of April, that that it could be tens of thousands of excess deaths. I mean, is that something? Are that is that as are those the sort of projections that you've seen, and, and do they give you um, cause for concern? Well, I, I don't, I don't believe apocalyptic um, measures of that kind. I just believe that we made a terrible mistake with uh, Eat Out to Help Out back in August that accelerated through the autumn. We got the variant of the virus, which then spooked people in January. I'd like to see a breakdown of the deaths in hospital between those who went in with a life-threatening illness or condition and caught COVID while they were in there and have COVID on their death certificate. Not because I don't believe that people have died in the numbers that are now projected, but because I think that uh, there may well be underlying issues and questions to be answered about that. And who knows? I mean, I, 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 I don't pretend to have any fantastic, uh, special scientific knowledge. All I know is I've listened carefully to scientists contradicting themselves over the last 12 months, just as economists do, I've tried to weigh up what made sense. And what makes sense is for people to keep a distance from each other when they are not immediate family, to actually wear uh, the face coverings when they're in public places, and to take care to wash hands and to use wipes and all the rest of it. Those are the, the most fundamental measures. Stopping people having their hair cut until well into April I don't think actually is here or there in terms of spreading the virus. I see. Is is your hair got out of control? Is this a personal personal plea? Certainly have. <laughs> I, I was hoping that given Boris's hair, might have been a bit more enthusiastic about getting the hairdressers out. <laughs> there we go. For those who haven't been following the most important news in the country, let's just make clear what the government's unlocking plans are. It's uh, it's a four step roadmap starting with schools reopening on 8th of march that's all schools two people will be able to socialize outside treat yourself then 29th of march the rule of six will return outside and outdoor sports will resume then in april or sort of it's no earlier than this is not firm deadlines but april is shops gyms libraries outdoor drinking and dining may hotel cinemas indoor drinking and dining um, larger outdoor groups uh, outdoor performances even uh, and then the uh, the that the idea is that by the middle of June, you've got um, no restrictions at all. So, Aisha, there was obviously some of these things were briefed in advance, but by no means all. Was there anything that surprised you about this? Well, I actually think it's it's a bit more bold than I was expecting. And we had been given um, this sort of mantra, um, data, not dates, but there was quite a lot of dates um, that were given out. So I actually. I thought it may have been a bit more cautious. I mean, they have said that they've they're going to set up some extra additional reviews to 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 look at how things are going. And I presume that if you know there are spikes in in cases and there'll be obviously hospitalisation numbers that they'll be tracking, that they may possibly push some of those dates back. So I think I think it. I think it's probably a bit more bold than I thought. I thought it was probably going to be a bit more cautious. Um, but obviously, they're, they are pinning a lot on the success of the, the vaccine. And the vaccine programme, to be fair, has been very successful. And the, the granular data that has come back from this country and, of course, from, from Israel is very promising, particularly with reducing seriousness of illness, hospitalisation, death and transmissibility. 
And there's a kind of, I suppose there's a psychological question here, which is something that the, the government and Boris Johnson have been wrestling with the whole time, which is, you know, giving people hope, uh, giving some to look forward to versus not getting their hopes up and then them feeling terribly let down if changes have to be made. So these dates, they go no earlier than, so they're not going, you know, mark your calendar. Uh, they're not guaranteeing it, but obviously people are going to have those dates in mind going Ooh. forward. Is it? I mean, Dorian, I've already been texting my hairdresser. Like, we've already <laughs> had a lot of WhatsApping for the 12th of April. I'm like, she's like, we don't even open on a Monday. I was like, I don't care, open up. Like, they're going to have people queuing outside. So I think, I think the difficulty for them is, I think they've been very mindful of the fact that so far, one of the criticisms have, has been that they've been too boosterish, too optimistic, and they've, you know, over-promised and under-delivered. I suppose my slight anxiety with this, and I am somebody who was desperate to get out of lockdown. I live alone. I'm going mad. Like, let's just be completely clear about that. I am slightly worried, though, that just by giving these dates, people will put them in their diary. And it's it's like, yes, party time. And I do worry that we might get into the situation that we did in last summer where we we, I mean, I know we do have the vaccine now, but I have got a slight anxiety about what things will be like when things open up, because there will be a spike in cases but if we but if we don't move reasonably fast people take it into their own hands which is the worst of all worlds where i mean i i think quite a lot of people you're not obviously i'm trying to be careful because i'm in public life but i think a lot of people and i I feel it around me and others around me see it uh, are already doing quite a lot of these things outside they're meeting up already in more than one person walking they are honestly so the the sooner we can actually ride with things that don't put people at risk in outdoor settings and do things that people are already starting to do the better arthur this is very phased last year's super saturday reopening on july the 4th uh was widely criticized for doing too much at once and therefore later on making it impossible to work out which of those changes spread the virus and which didn't do you think this shows the government has has learned that that lesson yeah i think so and it's been very clear the messaging that they they've said this is the last lockdown so you can't afford to leave this lockdown and then find out that we're all in trouble again and mm. do yet another one so i think it's very very clear that that, that they're just they, they've tried to sort of set a much more rigorous framework about how we're going to get out of this that's what did- my dog, by the way. That's that's, <laughs> that, that's mine. I'm afraid, David. I apologise. Yours is better behaved. <laughs> um, do you think it's wise to send all the schools back at once rather than primary followed by secondary, which is one option uh, that was muted? I mean, it, it's hard to know. I mean, clearly, that for, for parents with school-aged children, of which I'm one, and I know you are, Dorian. You know, that's brilliant news. Whether from the sort of epidemiological uh, context that's a good idea i'm not very qualified but it, i suppose you know either kids are mixing or they're not and if if the if you set back all the primary i mean those kids are going to be they're the ones that that observe the least social distancing so to some extent i imagine it doesn't make that much difference david obviously you've talked about about some of this so far but i was interested in what you thought about the government's reluctance over the past year to sort of close borders and to be very strict at the airports given that new strains have come in there's one from spain after the last uh, summer holiday obviously the south african strain um do you think that's something that they should have they should have acted on in the earlier phase of the pandemic well in retrospect and it's easy to say this and i i didn't get this 12 months ago so let me be clear if we'd done it in late february through march last year I think it would have had a, a major impact on that first lockdown and the ability to readjust. Uh, now, I think we've closed the door after the horse has bolted. I hope that they lift the, not the restrictions on high-risk countries. I think you're perfectly entitled to have uh, really, really draconian restrictions on that. But actually, in, in getting aviation working, it's very interesting that Theresa May was the first uh, Conservative up in questioning Boris Johnson in the House of Commons. And she was raising the issue of aviation, which is very close to her constituency. But it does matter to all of us, and they've got to be able to plan ahead. If we're going to fly, and by the way, I've I've booked my flight to Italy at the end of July, 
and I make no bones about that. I think that we've got to give the aviation industry some hope because otherwise it would collapse. I mean, Germany gave Lufthansa uh, an 8 billion bung. We've not done the same uh, for either our airports or our UK-based airlines. They're they're clinging in on loans that they're going to have to repay over years and years. Yeah. Mm. Dick, can I just put one other question, David? David, I know everyone is saying this has got to be the last lockdown, and we all hope it is. But let's say some monstrous new strain comes along. I mean, that will be out of politicians hands i mean they may have to put us back into a lockdown of some kind well if it was a monstrous new strain and it was killing people because in the end what we're about we're about reducing massively the spread of infection but above all people dying because you know we we, we're gonna have to live with this whether we like it or not we can't eliminate it We, we we've we've had no flu this winter to speak of at all which is a good thing we're, we're going to have to get this down to a level of living with flu, is it not? And if something comes forward that's much worse than that, then, of course, we'll have to deal with it. I mean, I'm just amazed at the way in which the scientists have been able to move quickly and to provide us with an, a range of vaccines which genuinely do seem to be working. I'm lucky I've had my first jab, and psychologically that made me feel a lot better, and I think the more people who have it, the more we'll start to feel comfortable with being with each other again. And once we feel that, the scare factor will go. Yeah. David, I'd like to talk to you a bit about crisis management, because you hadn't been Home Secretary very long at all when 9-11 happened. Did you realise right away that the consequences of that, as the consequences of, of COVID now, would, would dominate the rest of your tenure, that this was going to be the big issue? Well, it's pretty clear it was going to be for a long time, and it was longer than I had hoped and and intended. I mean, from that very evening of the 11th of September, we thought there was going to be an attack on the City of London because it was the most obvious second target after New York and Pennsylvania. Uh, And that, I mean, thank God, didn't happen. But we had to make a decision that evening in Cabinet, uh, meeting in what is known as COBRA, which is actually the committee room rather than anything special and it's a pretty miserable committee room as well um that we would actually have to calm everybody down so there was nobody in that cabinet that panicked i was amazed to be frank uh that there wasn't voices of staring people to death we were saying we're going to have to persuade people to go to work we're going to have to persuade people to carry on living their lives as normally as as we can. We'll put in place all the measures we need or think are necessary to to secure our life and limb, and that's what we did. And when I look back on it, it's a miracle now that people took that, that they did go to work the following day, that they carried on going to restaurants and uh, and cinemas. Uh, Now, what we've got at the moment is very different. The the Mm. virus is just totally different. But it's interesting how people will react differently. Psychology is a really important part of this and will react differently with the messages they get. And a year ago, Boris Johnson was um, criticised for missing five COBRA meetings in the sort of early stages of the pandemic. And one of the defences, well, look, is the prime minister doesn't need to be there. Everyone, you know, sometimes the relevant ministers uh, are uh, following 9-11, was, was Tony Blair always there or, or, or were Johnson's defenders right that actually the PM doesn't always have to be there? For a, for a long time, he, he took charge. For a long time, he was in the chair. There were other committees of cabinet. The Resilience Committee was about making sure that our stock of chemicals and agrochemicals were not going to be available. Um, I chaired that. Uh, there was also another security cabinet minister, which he, which he eventually let me chair. Um, but it, it, in the early stages, he was. I mean, I, I was quite kind to Boris Johnson a year ago. I actually thought that the government could only move at the speed that they could take people with them. That was reinforced in other countries as well. In retrospect, again, it was pretty stupid of him, and that just meant that he hadn't clocked it any more than I had, that this was going to be something that would sweep us aside. I mean, by fe- by the end of February, I'd begun to 
to get it, but I didn't get it in January, and that's when he needed to have got it. But I wasn't prime minister. <laughs> no, which is that's a good defence. Um, <laughs> and thinking back to your tenure, then is is Home Secretary always a tough job for a Labour politician? That, that by the nature of the job, you're pretty much bound to annoy the left. It's tough. It's tough anyway, but it's particularly tough when you're having to explain the measures you're doing to people who instinctively are against policing or instinctively uh, more civil libertarian than you're having to be at that moment in time. But I used to say, look, it, it's, up, it's up to liberty and groups like justice and uh, people writing in the, me- in the media or broadcasting and social media was just beginning to emerge when I was Home Secretary. It's up to you to put that side. It's up to me to try and balance between what I'm being told by the security services and what I believe to, is necessary to do. And I think we just about did it. We just about got the balance right. Sometimes you were on one side or the other, but the, the debate was a good one. The democracy actually did work. Uh, and when I was putting through the act immediately after the 11th of September, Parliament worked. They clipped my wings a bit. I mean, afterwards, I realised that they were right at the time. I got a little bit annoyed because we had the majority. We could push anything through. But listening to people, including in the oldest place that I now occupy, was quite important because there was a lot of people with a great deal of experience. And they say they when they were at their best, they came up with alternative ways of achieving what I was trying to set out. And how do you rate the current incumbent, Pretty Patel? I'd rather not say. Is that just uh, is that your principle that you don't rate uh, your su- your successors? I've, no, I've never rated Pretty Patel. From the, time, <laughs> from the time I heard her on the Today program during the build up to the referendum in 2016, saying that our small businesses were going to be liberated from Europe because they wouldn't have to follow the same labelling uh, as their counterparts in Europe, not appreciating that actually if you're going to sell to people, you adhere to their labelling. I mean, it's a simple, small thing, but it's about having a brain, really. <laughs> David, but before the Home Office, you, you were in Education Secretary of State. Um, I think Gavin Williamson hasn't has struggled a little in the role, but what would you have done differently if, if you'd been running education during the pandemic? I'd like to believe, would I not, as Tony would say, Um, that that actually as soon as we realised that the schools were going to have to be out for a period after last Easter, that we prepared. We prepared for teaching at home. We prepared for getting teachers to feel confident enough to go back into the classroom themselves uh, and that we had a plan that actually would resource that very quickly indeed. Now, eventually... The government got round to it in the autumn. It did take till the autumn before they actually began to put the resources in um, to work with the big providers in terms of connectivity to ensure that uh, there were plans for test and trace that would, again, build confidence. All of those things needed to be done much, much earlier. But it wasn't down just to Gavin Williamson, Arthur. I mean, the, the truth is that education was seen as a lesser priority a year ago. It was really in the doldrums. It's only in the last three months that education's once again been seen as a top priority for government. I'm really glad it has, but it took a long time uh, for people to get to that point. So, David, Keir Starmer's approaching the end of his first year um, as Labour leader. He had to make a big speech last week, sort of resetting his leadership, and he's come under a bit of fire for not having enough cut through. What's your assessment of how he's doing? It's a terrible job, and it's more terrible at the moment for the leader of the opposition because you put a foot wrong and you appear to be trashing uh, the endeavours of the nation. And... I mean, I think he's got two two major challenges. Uh, one is that you can't get a hearing. I mean, he did get a bit of a hearing last week, but y- you and your shadow cabinet can't get a hearing because the government are on the television, the print, the social media, 
almost every day with a press conference, with another announcement, with some piece of information that only government have access to. So firstly, you don't get a hearing. And secondly, the government are actually having, by necessity, not by will, to carry out social democratic policies. The, the borrowing and the interventions to save jobs, to save the economy, to save the health service and our lives are social democratic programs that nobody would have expected this right-wing cabinet to have ever implemented. And some of them are desperately uneasy about what they've had to do. And we might see that reversion over months and the next two years. But at the moment, it's quite difficult to attack what you would do yourself. Yeah. So I think we've, I just, got, we've got a problem. We've got to we've got to time ourselves. We've got to pace ourselves to come up with solutions that are not going back to the old ways, but are not so upsetting that people get scared as they did with uh, Jeremy Corbyn. And, and David, do you think he was right to not press for Matt Hancock to resign? Yeah, I, I was interested in what you said. I, I I think it's a slow burner, this one, by the way. I mean, I'm a bit obsessed about the near corruption and nepotism and what happened. I mean, we are talking billions, and we are talking about sloshing it out and people who knew people who knew people. And I think that will come home eventually to bite back. But at the moment, the temperature is not right for it. People aren't distracted and not interested, sadly, in who got the contracts for what. And there is one other factor, and it's another element in the, the challenge for the current opposition for our party, and that is this, that people actually do want to give the government the benefit of the doubt. I hear people all the time saying, well, would anybody else have done better? Well, they did their best, didn't they? And, oh, hasn't the, hasn't the rollout of the vaccine gone well? And, of course, you, could, you can't say anything except, yeah. Mm. And finally, David, Starmer's clearly hoping for a sort of different kind of post-COVID settlement. So there are two c- contradictory desires out there, um, in, in, even inside myself, I think. One is to get back to normal, um, and the other is to take this opportunity for radical change. And some people have even talked about like a 1945 moment, although obviously there was a Labour government uh, then. Um, do you think that this is an opportunity for the country to to sort of to, to take quite radical change and to not just revert to where we were. Yes, I do. And particularly in relation to inequalities and the impact of austerity over the last decade. I mean, when you, you, you mentioned my Daily Mail article, I think I've got another one in tomorrow. You can never tell until about eight o'clock in the evening. But they're allowing me to write about inequalities and injustice and people in poverty losing out the most. You wouldn't have got that under my dear friend Paul Dacre. So there is room, there is space to argue for something better than we had before. I'm not sure it's a 1945 moment. I'm always obsessed with 1950-51, where the Tories promised to do away with rationing immediately. They didn't. It took another three years. But Labour was still in the, oh, well, we must be cautious, we must be careful, we, we'll tell you the truth. People didn't want to hear the truth. They wanted optimism. <laughs> well, thank you so much for joining us. Uh, I know you've got to go now, but thanks, David Blunkett. You're very welcome. God bless you all. What is it like living under a digital dictatorship? Since 2014, China has been rolling out a social credit system in which citizens gain and lose points for their behaviour. Fall too low in the rankings and you risk sanctions and blacklisting, like 17 million people denied plane tickets in 2018. Former China correspondent for Germany's national newspaper, Süddeutsche Zeitung, Kai Strittmatter, lived in Beijing for 10 years. He left the country before publishing his latest book, We've Been Harmonised, Life in China's Surveillance State. It's a good job too. It's quite critical. My name is Kai Strittmatter. I'm a German journalist and sinologist. I have been living in China on and off for about 20 years. And when I left in the end of 2018, I wrote a book called We Have Been Harmonized. 
So China has been trying to introduce a social credit system since about 2014. Its aim is to divide the population into trustworthy people and trust breakers. And it does that with a rating system that is supposed to record, evaluate and sanction really every single one of your steps that you do 24-7. So it gives you plus points if you behave like an obedient citizen, if you work for a harmonious society, if you do voluntary work. And at the same time, uh, it downranks you for jaywalking, for not paying your metro ticket, for not paying your debt in time. But also, and this is where it gets political, for endangering society online. In the year uh, 2018, already 17 million Chinese people have been denied a plane ticket because they were blacklisted in the system. When you explain some of the details uh, and when you repeat the official propaganda that it's supposed to create trust in society and honesty, a lot of the reactions I got very often were very positive because people were thinking, you know, this is one of the biggest problems we have in our society, that Chinese society is really full of distrust. There's a huge lack of trust. And people would say, oh, yes, great. The arguments that they use, the arguments of safety, security, all this will make your uh, life more secure. It will make your life safer. They work. It's all about, you know, in the end, you self-censoring yourself, you being your own policeman, because once you are your own policeman, the policeman outside standing at the street corner is no longer needed. Xi Jinping and the Communist Party is trying to power these new politics of repression with artificial intelligence and big data. So what we're seeing really now is the reinvention of dictatorship with digital means. It has always been a dictatorship. It has not been a totalitarian state for the last three or four decades before Xi Jinping came to power. On the contrary, the party actually gave up control and there were lots of needs of freedom for, for artists, intellectuals, businesses and stuff. Xi Jinping has done away with a lot of that. It's a much smarter form of totalitarianism totalitarianism than the one that has existed before because it does not have to rely so much on everyday terror and violence. It's more about internalizing control and getting into your brain and under your you know, uh, pillow with the means of technology. And at the moment, they're quite successful in doing that. Aisha, do you agree that this is the most extensive social engineering project since the Cultural Revolution, sort of Mao 2.0? It is um, really concerning, and it, it it did make me feel, you know, it did make me really stop and and think because, you know, we are so used to giving over so much of our data, we've become uh, quite blasé about it, and and then we have the collision of, of course. Of, the very unusual circumstances we're, we're in now, where you have this very, very heavy-handed approach to our civil liberties, which we have volunteered into. But it, it I, I found it very um, chilling, actually. And it did also um, remind me of some of the stories that we've heard from China, particularly from Western journalists who are have essentially sort of stuck there. They were there for work. They can't get out now. Um, about how you know the COVID restrictions are also being used in terms of you know enhancing all of this sort of surveillance system and uh, and social engineering. So I do think it's it's a quite a timely reminder that in the midst of everything we are are in now, to still keep a, somebody and lots of people have to keep fresh eyes on civil liberties, surveillance data um how much we give wh what is the contract between the individual and the state that it, for me it was a very timely and quite chilling reminder arthur kai says the two pillars of chinese society are strong surveillance a strong economy and the government argues that the former supports the latter during covid we've seen how states like singapore and israel have used uh, obviously rather different from china but both with strong centralized state infrastructures and that's helped them tackle the virus quite well is the perception of the costs and benefits of privacy always going to be different in countries like the UK, US, and EU? That we just we just do not have this this sort of cultural expectation of, of of any restrictions, really. Well, I think what we're seeing in China is the start of this kind of great divergence in terms of 
a future where tech enables state control. And that's effectively, you know, China is, is, is pushing new boundaries and it's, it's a lot of its, it, its tech development has enabled this in, in technologies that we don't even have in the West. Um, and, I, and we are going to see, I think, the world start to separate off into these kind of two different pathways. And there, there will be a part of the world that just isn't prepared to do that. And, you know, in the West, we're rightly very worried about the degree to which even, you know, engagement on social media to some extent can, can reduce our privacy, whereas you're looking at another version of the future. And of course, what China's doing will be adopted, their technologies and, and techniques will be adopted in places like Russia, but also I think in a lot of the Arab states and, and many other parts of the world. And so we're starting to see kind of two versions of, of how, how humanity is going to live. The government has just ordered an investigation into extremism in the UK under former Labour MP John Woodcock, now Lord Walney, who says, uh, rightly, the far right is much more of a threat than the far left. The 2020 Global Terrorism Index found that far right attacks were on a level not seen for over 50 years, with incidents up 250% since 2014, fatalities up 700%. Last year, only 11% of the cases reported to the UK's Prevent Programme ended up being referred to the de-radicalisation programme channel. And of those, 43% were right-wing radicalisation, compared to 30% for Islamist radicalisation. Is it time for anti-terrorist policy to change tack? Arthur, after 20 years of prioritising Islamists, have Western countries recognised the need for an equivalent de-radicalisation programme for the far right? Well... I think what is happening is this is like the oil tanker, you know, changing direction. And I think certainly in this country, it, it has pretty much swung into the right uh, trajectory. But there's plenty of catching up that needs to happen. And of course, recognizing where the problem lies is the first step. But it doesn't by any means, uh, you know, it, it's not by any means a sufficient response. And so there's, there's just a lack of understanding and expertise in sort of government, which 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 has to do a lot of catching up on this subject. And when you were at Prevent, um, how much attention was paid to to far right extremism? How much of a, an issue was it? Well, if I'm very honest, it was something that we would mention because we didn't want to be accused of always going on about Islam, and that's completely appropriate because clearly Prevent is not a one subject, uh, you know, strategy, but. In, in all practical terms, it, it wasn't by any means a, a priority. It wasn't really being looked at. There was very little resource put into it. Um, but of course, it's always been there. I remember, you know, just um, right at the, just before the millennium, there were, um, you know, homophobic bomb attacks in Soho, you know. So these sorts of things have, have, have not ever disappeared from our society. But tragically, you know, it's risen right up the agenda. Yeah, the Admiral Duncan bombing was yeah. 1999. Yeah. Um, how does the UK compare with the US and uh, other countries in the I say other countries in the EU, sorry, countries in the EU, mm. in terms of far-right activity? How, how, how bad is our problem? Well, the, the, the kind of uh, violent militancy in this country, and my understanding, and I did sort of uh, touch base with some people who are kind of well-placed know about this, it is, it is not as developed, not remotely as developed as it is in the US, which you should all be relieved to know. Obviously, they have the problem there of wide availability of weapons. But also in the EU, because you have large, well-organized far-right political movements that has allowed the even more far-right sort of splinter fringe violent movements to spring off there. So, but, you know, there's no cause for, um, for any kind of complacency here because it, there's been this incredibly unhealthy sort of rumbling underneath in British politics. And, of course, an MP was murdered by a far-right political activist in 2016. And I think that our society has never really come to terms with that we we tried to pretend it was a mental health crisis when it happened and you know clearly these people exist are you should do you think i suppose thinking more more broadly do you think social media has a radicalizing effect even away from the extremes by encouraging people to sort of form silos to start fights to double down rather than admit weakness i'm thinking i mean you know not just nazis but that, that sort of generally it pushes people to the extremes of their position 
Oh, absolutely, 100%, almost on, on any issue. You cannot have any kind of nuanced discussion on social media. It is set up to reward extreme positions, um, whether they're hatred or, you know, huge offence or huge anger. That's what gets rewarded on social media. And I think what tends to happen is that a lot of people almost sort of, you know, they, they have a view. It might not be a fixed view, but they have a bit of a view. They start dipping in and they end up finding a sort of tribe of people with similar views and then they end up becoming more radicalised in their view. And I think we're seeing it all the time at the moment um, on everything, you know, social rights, equality rights, um, politics, absolutely everything. And I, I think one of the strongest bits on Joe Biden's speech, his inauguration speech, was the fact that every disagreement doesn't have to mean we go to war. But that is how it's geared up on, on social media. And I think as well, in an age of where people feel quite disconnected and we are in this age of loneliness as well. And I think that existed pre-pandemic. Social media and and getting in with these tribes, it gives people a sense of that they're part of something. And I think that kind of being part of something also creates like very good conditions to radicalise people. They feel like they have a, a kind of a community. They might not at the beginning have agreed with some of the more extreme views, but that sense of kinship sort of drags them into being more extreme. And one thing that shocks me was that apparently one in five Poles and Germans believes that the Barmy conspiracy theories of QAnon are at least partly true. Fact check, they're not. Do you think another thing that social media has done is sort of fast track American obsessions to the rest of the world? Yes, absolutely. Absolutely. I mean, just today, um, I saw that um, it was such a weird tweet. So, Devi Sridhar, who is, I think, a really, really brilliant epidemiologist who is often doing a lot of stuff on on, on television. Um, somebody from Glasgow was like just trolling her and it just suddenly morphed in it morphed from a being a bit of a oh, I don't she's she basically wants to keep us locked up. It morphed into she's part of the global elite. She's and it start and then it just morphed into these sort of Q and on things very, very mm. quickly. And you're like, wow. I mean, this is this is weird that it's it's pivoted so quickly. So it moved from just being a lockdown thing into full blown sort of QAnon conspiracies. It it was weird. Yeah, I don't want to be uh, I don't want to be nationalist about this, but what happened to good old fashioned British crankishness, uncontaminated <laughs> by our transatlantic cousins? <laughs> I love it. Back in the first lockdown in April, a Sky News poll found that 64% of the public didn't trust TV journalists. Um, so is this radicalisation in, as well as something to do with social media, in part the consequence of declining trust in mainstream media? You get that weird sense of being extremely sceptical of the BBC and just up for anything that someone says on a Facebook group. I think there's a general... I think I think that does have an impact, but I think there's also... It, it, it's also impacted by the the lack of trust in a lot of mainstream um, establishments and and institutions and and the and the media and the BBC is obviously part of that and of course a huge distrust in in politics and I think um, you know when I think about my own um, community the Muslim community I mean even something like Prevent so a, a, a lot of people in the Muslim community will just never think that Prevent they think Prevent was only set up for Muslim people, right? They don't think it was actually set up for, you know, looking at street extremism across the board. Um, a lot of people from different communities will never see themselves represented in any mainstream, whether it's mainstream media, whether it's mainstream politics, the the big, you know, architects of, of society. And I think that is all, that definitely... Um, that definitely feeds into extremism. But the other thing about extremism is that one type of extremism breeds another type of, of extremism. Extremism feasts off each other. And this is the terribly dangerous thing about how polarised we're, we're becoming. You know, you think that you can counter a really um, extreme group by creating your own really extreme group, but that just doesn't just just doesn't sort of happen it just creates more sort of um, um misery but i think this lack of trust generally is a is a big issue and it's one which just carries on because the truth is none of the big institutions really 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 
do anything to solve it. There's a lot of lip service paid to trying to be a bit more relevant to different communities and connect with different communities and particularly younger people, but it never really happens. So on that point, I, I want to ask you about sort of prevent. For those who don't know, can you briefly explain how prevent and channel are supposed to work? Um, a lot of people maybe don't even know that there are these two kind of related programs. Yeah, so they they were part of the wider government counterterrorism strategy called Contest. And the point about prevent is, as the name suggests, the idea was to prevent people from getting into extremism so that they they don't end up becoming, you know, part of some kind of extremist group and to try to sort of nip the problem in the bud, if you like. Uh, within that, the channel program is a kind of sub-activity of prevent where people who are seen at as being at risk from kind of getting sucked into some kind of extremist activity, gangs or, or, or perhaps some kind of terrorist organization or something, they would then be channeled for more intensive engagement with ordinary uh, kind of public services. So you would try to ensure, for example, that if it's a young person in education, that the teachers are aware that this person is vulnerable, or if it's someone who's in the care system or, or those kinds of things. So on, on the face of it, th- these are programs that try to sort of use the tools of kind of social services and wider kind of government services to prevent a more extreme situation from unfolding. And Prevent's always been controversial. Now we've got 17 human rights groups, including Amnesty and Liberty, saying they will boycott the new review of it under the new head, William Shawcross. But the the sort of criticisms uh, directed at Shawcross aren't entirely new. What was your response, I mean, back when you were working for it, um, to the allegations that it, it, it fostered Islamophobia and often kind of was swept up innocent people for fairly trivial acts for saying one one sort of small thing and suddenly they're in the government's targets. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot to unpack there. So one of the things I think to remember is the context, particularly after the 7-7 you know, attacks, obviously, um, I think 59 people killed on, on the underground and the, and the bus Tavistock Square. It's impossible to deny there was clearly a very real threat and there were other uh, genuine, you know, near misses and, and and serious plots and all the rest of it. At that time, Islamist-inspired terrorism was the biggest threat in terms of, of kind of national security threats in the country. That doesn't take away the fact that, you know, as, as I think Aisha mentioned, that, you know, a lot of ordinary, completely law-abiding, peaceful-minded Muslims felt sort of unfairly targeted and stigmatized. And also, I think that, even though you know we we had a labor government at the time that there were still elements in which uh there was a kind of failure to to sort of separate what is a a faith and a group of people who are you know massive majority were law abiding and are law abiding and were were appalled by terrorism and a tiny number who of course ended up being involved in terrorism. The problem with prevent and where it gets so complicated and controversial is that if you say, well, we're trying to stop people drifting into terrorism, by definition, you're dealing with people who are not actually extremists. You're dealing with people who may just be sort of flirting with the ideas and the ideologies. And I think it's always a very touchy subject for governments. But I think if if you ignore it and say, well, let's just wait, you know, for the problem to, to be an actual criminal issue, then the risk is that it gets much bigger and it grows into a much more sort of unmanageable problem. Mm. Well, to talk about that trap that Aisha mentioned, I suppose, you know, where extremism, you know, that that's that sort of the doubling down trap. Was there any evidence that it was sort of, it could sometimes be counterproductive that, you know, it's almost that sort of, what I call the, the M&M reaction, which is I am whatever you say I am. And that people who felt that the government was, was kind of pouncing on them or persecuting them, reacted by becoming becoming more sort of defiant, becoming more radical. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. I think there's a lot to criticise. So I've, I've sort of given the, the theory of the case, but I think in practice, I think one of the problems with Prevent was that the government talked about it so much. I mean, the, these this was, a, <laughs> if you like, a methodology of analysis of, of dealing with and looking at a challenge that existed 
in national security. But you didn't need to go around the country kind of telling people prevent, prevent, which by definition is a word that, you know, brings a lot of negative connotations. And it was definitely counterproductive because the other thing it did was that it seemed that uh, it allowed quite a lot of fairly sort of entrepreneurial people to take advantage, basically, of various government programs, uh, many of whom, you know, had really no ability to engage with the issues of uh, extremism of radicalization, of sort of, um, you know, violent, violent extremism. But what it did do was you had this sort of constant drumbeat of news reporting about, you know, the risks of, of young Muslim men becoming terrorists, which again, is just this sort of endless stigmatization. So I think, I think a lot of it was counterproductive. And, I, and, you know, the question, the degree to which the government has learned lessons is, is obviously an important one. But I, just to jump in there, I think it's so important to, to state that I think for so much of the Muslim community, it's just sent out such a negative message. Yeah. It sent out this message that that Muslims had a sort of some kind of propensity, a thirst for the, for terrorism and bad activity. And, and that just created this defiance from particularly the young, a younger generation yeah. of Muslim, not just men, but women. You know, we started talking about the Shamima Begum mm. thing. I think like that has, you know, why were young women wanting to get involved in this horrendous kind of death cult? Well, there was a, there was a defiance as well. You know what you said, Doreen, if you're going to paint me to be this monster, well, I'll become this felt self-fulfilling um, prophecy. And what was also interesting is that as as Arthur said, the government went really, really hard on the Muslim community, but they didn't join up the dots in terms of, okay, well, what about, um, let's look at the broader picture of where Muslims sit in society in terms of their economic status, their social yeah. status, all of that stuff. There was none of that joining up of, of the dots. And it, I think it's done such damage in terms of an entire generation of particularly young Muslim women and men who do feel um, really um, unrooted in this country they don't really feel like they're proper citizens which again I think there's a lot of that that bleeds into this this Shamima Begum thing and I still think the government hasn't got a grip on the far-right extremists I mean we talk about the Joe Cox murder which was horrendous it was a horrific plot um, involving Rosie Cooper another yeah. Labour MP where um, you know that was intercepted they were planning to do horrific uh, 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 execute her and I think the problem with the far-right stuff as well is it's sort of tacitly I'm not going to go as far as to say supported because that's not right but you know we know that dog whistles are given off all the time um, by people who've got such big platforms but also people you know in connected to the government so I feel like it's just got we've got so messed up on on the whole extremist um policy area and it's so it's so fragile and it's so dangerous right now um after i suppose a lot of the criticism of, of shawcross comes from something he said in 2012 when he was a director of the neocon think tank the henry jackson society he said europe and islam is one of the greatest most terrifying problems of our future i think all european countries have vastly very quickly growing islamic populations now given what aisha just said given the fact that the focus really needs to be turning more towards the far right, is he the wrong man to be heading Prevent at this time? Well, let's remember, he, what he's heading is the review into uh, Prevent. So he's Sorry, not, yes, yes, yes. Yeah, I mean, I, I only make that point because he's not the person devising the programmes and, and sort of delivering them. That quote, which is obviously now nine years ago, is that doesn't doesn't sound at all sort of uh, sensitive or broad minded. But equally, I, I think it's, it's, it, it would be very risky to boycott his work, because it, it does seem to me that 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 would actually be counterproductive. So I mean, these kind of reviews and things are always undertaken by people who are seen as allies of, of the government, because that's how people get appointed. So I think you know, I think we just have to, to to make sure that he is getting the information to be able to 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 understand, you know, what the program is and, and what its elements are. And, and finally, Aisha, one of the issues, you know, that the, the preventers had in the past was issues to sort of free speech. That what kind of statements make you, you know, are considered to make you a potential terrorist, and which are just kind of legitimate political opinions. Do you see a sort of 
similar problem on the far right, that it's going to be a, a sort of delicate balance to identify extremists to try and you know, prevent the kind of things that, that, that happened with, with Joe Cox and Rosie Cooper without you know, getting, I suppose, sucked into what is now, the, as, as heated as I can ever remember it, a huge debate about free speech and the right being particularly defensive on the subject. Oh, you can't say anything these days. It's, you know, is, is that going to be a really difficult needle to thread? Yeah, I think I think it is, and I think that um, uh, you know, I'm afraid we do have a, a a strong political signal, which is definitely sort of picking a side in in all of this. I mean, the with all this nonsense about um, you know a free speech czar and and all this kind of thing, it very much seems to be um, well. If we agree with this free speech, then it's we're happy for it to be free. Um, I mean, that basically seems to be the the the, the narrative. I mean, I, I feel like the the free speech debate it has just exploded the culture war um, in a way that's so unhelpful. Look, the truth is, you have to have um, an eye across, and of course Arthur's the expert on this, but you have to have an eye across extremism. You know. wherever you wherever you find it but you have to be um you have to be fair and you have to be judicious and it just doesn't feel that that is what's happening um at the moment particularly when the threat is now uh, and, and and people have been warning about this for years the threat and it's not just in this country it's across europe as well and of course we've seen what happened in in america on you know insurrection day on the 6th of 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 january we just have a situation where the people who are sort of in charge are just refusing to to kind of acknowledge that as being a reality right now. We've come to the end of this week's bunker. Before we go, let's ask the panel for their escape route from politics. What's soothing our tortured brows? Uh, Aisha, you first. Okay, I think I'm probably going to come in with the most lowbrow thing since the last lowbrow thing I brought to the table, which is I'm afraid I've got sucked into like the worst TV show ever. It is like television crack. It's married at first sight, Australia. It's so horrendous. It's so horrendous, but I cannot stop watching it. And it's so long as well. It's like 40 episodes. I'm quite pleased that this roadmap out of recovery is just going to give me a bit more time <laughs> to actually finish it. I think I'm going to actually have to, I don't think I can hold down a proper job and watch this at the same time. But so if you want something which is completely addictive, but is probably going to kill off your brain cells um it's for you. Married at First Sight, Australia, Series uh, 6. My God, it sounds terrifying. Um, it is terrible oh. and terrifying. It's, I feel like I need therapy. There needs to be a survivor's group of people who've just watched it. It's so bad. <laughs> Arthur, raise, well, come on, raise the bar. Well, I, I will raise the bar, although I'll start by saying that my 13-year-old daughter absolutely loves that show, Aisha. So maybe you, you, you two could join in the kind of therapy group together. We could do a um, podcast on it together. In fact, put me down for a bunker daily with, with Arthur's daughter. Um, uh, yeah, now I'm going to sound all snooty when I say what I, I've been up to. No, I've, I've been reading a fascinating book about George Blake. So George Blake was a, a, a British MI6 officer who in 1961, it was discovered that he had been a spy for the Russians. But what makes him interesting was that he was actually born a, a Jewish, Dutch, Egyptian Turk. He was the most cosmopolitan man imaginable. He had an absolutely extraordinary life and had was in the res- Dutch resistance in World War II. And then he was in the Korean War and eventually found his way into MI6, but was spying for the Russians. And, and a book about him called The Happy Traitor has just come out by Simon Cooper, uh, in sort of commemoration of the fact that Blake died just before the new year. And it, it's a really fascinating read. Um, well, I'm assuming uh, that, that Andrew, when he hosted, has already mentioned WandaVision. So that's a given. Um, so I'm going to recommend um, a book called Less by Andrew Sean Greer, uh, which came out three years ago and won the Pulitzer Prize for fiction. And I find that a lot of people say they struggle to read novels at the moment. And what I think is that you need a novel that's so stimulating and moving and enjoyable that it sort of gets you back into the whole idea of them. And I just found this one amazing. The writing is, is phenomenally good. It's sort of, uh, it's about a guy, a guy, writer, 
on the verge of 50, whose ex-boyfriend is about to get married. And he kind of just, in his midlife crisis, just takes on all these commitments around the world. So each chapter is a different country. And it just, it reduced me to tears. It's also very funny. Uh, so if you're struggling to find uh, novels that grab you, I would recommend less. Okay, I feel really bad now. I feel like I've I feel like I've really let myself down because my choice was like so. I'm gonna I'm gonna pitch in with one slightly more hybrid thing, which is a novel, a historical novel, um, which has been written by a brilliant author who I actually used to work with in politics called Laura Shepherd Robinson. It's called Daughters of Night, and it's the Times uh, Book of the Month, and it's all about um. It's set. It's it's set in the time of Bridgerton, but it's like the seedy side of Bridgerton, and it's all around um, prostitution, corruption, the police. Um, it's absolutely brilliant. So that is my recommendation. And I feel really bad about Married um, at First Sight Australia, <laughs> but I just want to say that it. I think it made you see realize that humanity was so bad. That's why COVID had to come along. I think that is basically <laughs> that explains COVID. I like the way you have you have two lanes here, and you have a suggestion for each lane. Like depending <laughs> depending on how your brain is feeling, there's there's two options. It's all about range, Dory. <laughs> well, thank you both. We'll be back tomorrow with another Bunker Daily and the full length show this time next week. Don't forget to subscribe. And if you enjoyed the show, you can back the bunker on Patreon. Just see our Twitter or Facebook or search Patreon Bunker Podcast. Backers get a salute on the show, and here are some now. So it's thanks from me to Graham Sheridan, John Saunders, Francis Vaucher, and Patricia Riley. Hello, and a big thanks from me to Alex Kennedy, Jonathan Gill. Uh, Christian von Schultzendorf and Zwango. Thank you very much. And finally, thanks for me to Nicola Kirby, Martin J. Cooney, Adam Barnett and the late great comedian Richard Pryor. (laughs) (laughs) Take care and see you next time. The Bunker was presented by Dory Linsky with Arthur Snell and Aisha Hazarika. The producer was Andrew Harrison. The assistant producers were Jacob Archbold and Yelna Sofronievich. An audio production was by me, Alex Reese. Theme tune by Kenny Dickinson. The Bunker is a Podmasters production. <laughs>